following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. We're in a study of the Beatitudes, and we said a couple of things about that. Number one is that the Beatitudes really summarize the entire Bible. If you understand the Beatitudes, you'll understand the entire Bible. In fact, when both Eric and, and Austin go back to preaching on the covenant, you're going to probably recognize that even in the covenant, some of those things have been fulfilled within the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes also, secondly, are the story of salvation. It describes salvation history to the entire church and to the entire family of God, past and coming in the present. It is everything we need to know about the Bible. In the story of salvation, God says, I want you to know that when we start, you start where I start. And so I say to you, blessed, makarios, fulfilled, complete. The word does not mean happy. That's a bad translation. The word means blessed, being fulfilled with all there is to be fulfilled with. Blessed is that person who understands that they're poor in spirit. They have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer them. And when they come to that realization that they have absolutely nothing, they're not just destitute in the sense that they have a little bit, and, but God gives most of it. No, they're absolutely flat out busted. They have nothing to give God, zero spiritually. That person then begins to mourn, to have their heart broken with what breaks God's heart. And what breaks God's heart? That you've been on your program all by your life, all by yourself. You've had no need for God. And that breaks your heart. It now says, since I have nothing to offer God, He has everything to offer me. I no longer want to be on my own program. And so I come under His tutelage, His authority, which is meekness. It's an equestrian term, as we said uh, last week. It's under His ridership of the Holy Spirit that my will and my energy and my talent, everything is given to Him. God does not break my spirit, but He breaks my will and gives me complete satisfaction in that. And so that I'm under His control. And when I am, I begin to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. I begin to hunger and thirst for what He has to say. Because I've so filled up with what I've been doing. Now, once I'm filled up with God's righteousness, once I'm filled up with His Word, it causes me to want to become merciful. I begin to treat others the way God treats people. What Jesus expects and demands as His followers the essence of following Jesus is reacting to who and what he is and what he has done. I want you to know that when it means to be a Christian, it means for us simply to look at Christ. Too often I think we look at creeds and churches and denominations. I'm saying that may have its place, but not here. What's important here is who Jesus is. It is the heart of your heart that's reacting to him. He loved us before we loved him. We reacted to that. It says, be mature as I am mature, God says. That's a reaction to who he is. I respond to who he is and what he's done. As a Christian, I'm walking and responding to who he is. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. First John says, I walk in the light as he is in the light. We turn our Christianity sometimes off and on like a water faucet. It ought not be that way. We can't control our Christianity. Rather, our Christianity should be controlling us. 
The Beatitudes reveal this in my life. When a person responds or reacts to my mercy, then they should become merciful people, God says. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness with God, you will know how and you will know to whom you need to be merciful. And so this morning, up on the screen, you'll see this, the seed or the, the little beatitude that says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, what does that mean to be merciful? Well, it doesn't mean that you wink at sin, you know. Do you know what I mean by that? Kind of like, oh, that's cool, you know. Or you treat it lightly. We're, we're not into a Hollywood or filmmaking kind of mercy, where we treat God like a superstar, or we treat God like a human. And we think that, oh God, you know, whatever Hollywood thinks God is, he would never, ever send a person to hell. He would not allow anything bad to happen to anybody. And yet the Bible says that our God is a God of wrath. He's a God of fire. We don't like those verses sometimes. But let me be very clear with you that if you will do this for me this year, I will show you something that will absolutely astound you. If you will do a study on the wrath of God and understand who he is when he commits his wrath to someone, I will tell you that it will really, you'll begin to really appreciate the love of God. That you and I as Christians have been spared the wrath of God. That's a powerful thing to know that his grace covers all that. Mercy, he says, is the ability to get within a person's skin and see with their eyes, feel with their feelings, hear with their ears, think with their mouths or, or minds, and sense with their hearts. When I go to pray, there is not one heartache, disappoint, disappointment, or anxiety that God has not felt. Have you ever wept? Well, Jesus wept. You ever lost a friend? Jesus went through death. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly how I feel. Isn't that amazing? When I'm glad, he's glad. When I'm sad, he's sad. When I'm happy, he's happy. When I feel I've lost, he feels that loss for me. It's not just pity. Mercy is more than feeling sorry. But it's that I give myself to help relieve that need. If I don't, then otherwise it's hypocrisy. James 2.13, I think you'll see it on the screen. It says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Wow. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James goes on to talk about what good is it, my brother, to say you have faith but no deeds. Can such a faith save him? If a sister or brother's without food or clothes, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing, does absolutely nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Well, that's not saving faith to say to someone, I see that you're hungry, but you know what, I'll pray for you anyway. Wow. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, another one that's going to pop up on the screen there says, in this way, love is made complete. But then it goes on to say what? If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he's not seen. And there's a double negative participle there. It says, how can the love dwell when you lock it up? It It literally means, how can you lock up your love? How can you keep your love from somebody? No, it means when you're merciful, you will place your life at the disposal of others. And so I'm ready to kind of give you a definition this morning of a merciful person. And there are probably three little bullet points. You're kind in your criticisms and judgments. You're always ready to forgive. And, he, and you give yourself to meet that need. This is really powerful in this situation. That's a kind of person who's in action, not one who sits on the sideline. So we need to delve a little further into that. And so now we come to the flower. You remember the seed is the beatitude. Somewhere in the sermon is the flower. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 7 and it says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and they turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For, anyone who, for everyone who asks, receives. Who seeks, finds. And him knocks, the door will be opened. Wow. Now, when it talks about don't judge... I think sometimes we say, we take that literally and say, okay, I'm never to judge anything. That's not exactly what this Greek word means. What it means is you can definitely have an opinion. You can make the call, but you just can't condemn. That's the difference in this Greek word. It does mean to make a judgment. Every one of you made some judgments when you came to church this morning. You said, now let's let's see, does this shirt go with this pants? Does this dress go with that scarf or whatever do these shoes match my dress Uh, am i going to wear shorts or am i going to wear a t-shirt you made some judgments but when you came in we all saw what you wore and we can have an opinion we can say you know well hey that works but it would be wrong for us to condemn what jesus is saying here is he's not saying don't judge He's saying the only way you can judge properly is through my word. But since you've been hungering and thirsting for my word, since you have a banquet appetite for my scripture, now you're in a position to make the right call. You're in the the right position to make the right judgment without condemnation. That's what it means to be merciful. It doesn't mean I'm here to overlook sin or to redefine reality. It means quit trying to discern a person's motive and then condemn them. It it really speaks towards perpetual fault-finding. Sometimes in the United States, one who continuously is perpetual in their fault-finding, we we call that word nagging. (laughs) Nag, 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 nag. You can do this better. You can do that better. You can be... And we're always finding fault with each other. No, a person who's merciful is not one to get given to perpetual fault-finding. They make correct judgments, they have correct opinions, but it's based on the fact that they've hungered and thirst for righteousness. 
And they know what God's mind is on that subject. And the reason they wanted God's mind under that subject is because they're now under his control. And the reason they're under control is because they're sick of being under their own control. And the reason they got sick of being under their own control is because they finally figured it out. I've got nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer me. Well, that's a powerful story. I want to become that merciful person. I want to see it the way God sees it. But I can't do that if I'm just filled up with human wisdom. If I'm hungry and thirsting for Plato and Socrates, as much as those books are great, and they're great read, as much as I might be filled up with movies and moral issues from Aesop and his fables and all that kind of stuff, well, that might be fun and dandy, but that is not going to make you a wise person on how to judge situations. You need to hunger and thirst, have a banquet appetite for the Word of God. That will give you the mind of Christ. Now into this situation comes the command. Don't judge lest you be judged. No, it doesn't mean not to judge. God has words, has, has great, great uh, judgment and opinion on what it means to be a drunk or a thief or an adulterer. Uh, the scripture is very clear about that. There's no guessing game about that. But sometimes we hesitate. And rather, we carry the idea that personal judgment and then condemnation follows. No, it speaks against having a critical spirit towards others. I can't answer that, but I can tell you that, that there are three things I want to talk about this morning on this particular subject. And this is number one. When I judge others, I expose myself to the same judgment. What does he say there in verse 1? Take a look at verse 1 again. You don't need to go back on the, on the, inner, on the uh, slides. Let me read that to you. It says, he, he's, he simply says this, and I, I think this is really powerful because, you know, oftentimes we, we get caught up in this, but he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. In other words, when I judge others in the wrong way, Without the word of God, I expose myself to the same judgment. Wow. When I demand perfection of others, I need to demand it of myself. By this word, you can condemn yourself. Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, he says, There are six things, yea, even seven that are an abomination to God. Now, whenever the scripture says there are six, yea, seven, and Amos there says there are three things, yea, four, what is the writer saying? He's saying this, and if, for those of you who are her hermeneutic or interpretation fans of scripture, whenever it says six, yea, seven, or three, yea, four, the emphasis is always on the yea, four, or the seven. It's always on the last one. Now, in Proverbs, in chapter six, verse 16 and following, he lists seven things. Four of them are sins of the tongue. And the last one is causing strife amongst people. In other words, you're kind of a gossip and you're kind of starting conversations and you're kind of, you're kind of mixing up the pot a little bit and you're trying to stir it up a little bit and get some really good juicy gossip going. God hates it. And in fact, he even says there are six, yea, even seven that are an abomination to God. And the last one is kind of stirring up the pot. Wow. Maybe I better watch what I say. Maybe I better not be too condemning because if I start judging others that way, 
I've just judged myself. But if I have God's perspective because I've hungered and thirst for it, I now can relate to that. And so what do I know about that? I know that in the epistles, Paul writes, let every word that comes out of your mouth be seasoned as it were with salt that you might know how to respond to every person. And somebody comes up to you with a juicy bit of gossip, your, 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 your response is, oh yeah, let me tell you what I heard. No, that's not your response. How much different would it be if somebody came up and you're talking about a brother or sister who's had a problem and isn't doing so well if you stop and said, you know what? Well, that's okay. You told me, but I'll tell you what. Why don't we turn this conversation back to Jesus? Why don't we pray for that brother and sister? Why don't we just pray God's grace upon their life right now? We don't keep the gossip going. We stop it. If I demand perfection of others, I'm demanding of myself. Number two, when I judge others, I raise the standard of my own judgment. Look at verse two in that passage. This will be this way. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The word measure there, in the second measure, it becomes a kind of a plural or a, a kind of, and, 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 and so it will be turned back to you, intensity. It's kind of an aorist imperative. Sometimes seminary can be helpful, and I hope this is helpful. But it means it kind of turns up the juice on you just a little bit. Wow. So you mean when I condemn somebody else, I condemn myself? When I judge others, I raise the standard of my own judgment. That's why James says, be careful among you if you want to be a teacher because that will incur a stricter judgment. Huh. That's, not a great, that's not a great poster thing for, you know. How many of you like to be teachers in the church? You know, boy, we sure admire all the preachers and the teachers in the church, and they're doing a great job. How many want to be, I'd like to do that too. Well, just so you know, there's a stricter judgment. It's not a great recruiting program, is it? You know, I'm so glad the Lord is the judge and not me. You see, because when I use his word to judge a situation, the Lord is judging the situation, not me. So here I am deciding to want to be that merciful person, to get inside a person's skin and see with their eyes and think with their thoughts and feel with their feelings. I can't do that on my own, but I can when, I'm, when I've had a banquet appetite of the Word of God and I can see it for what it is and I can see how Jesus would handle it. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm under His authority. And the reason I'm under His authority is because I'm sick of being under my own. And the reason I'm sick of being under my own is because I finally figured it out. He, he's got everything. I got nothing. But if I think I got something, I won't mourn. I'll stay on my own program. I won't be under his control. And I may have a snack appetite towards the word of God. And I'll take care of my own judging. Boy, that's a losing program, isn't it? And so the church of Jesus Christ is called to be merciful because God was so mercy to others. Now, let's take a look at that third one here because I know time is moving on. Number three, when I judge others, I must first judge myself 
Otherwise, I show myself incapable of judging. And what's that verse? Well, there it is. Get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your own friend's eye. Hey, you know, you, here, isn't that an interesting picture? When you think somebody else is, is wrong and has something going on in their life, they have just a little speck. You're the one who has the log. Just let that sit for a minute. Does that feel good? It doesn't feel so good sometimes. No, no, they're the ones that have the log. I just have the speck. See, I would have written it that way. But Jesus wrote it the other way. You're the one who has the log. They're the one who has the speck. You can't even do the judging. You must first come, even though you're filled up with righteousness and you're, you're filled up with God's word in your life, even then, the first step is before you go to a brother or sister to talk to them, you, you have to come to God and say, God, show me in my life where I need the improvement too. Where, where, where am I in this program? How, have I, how I can learn. I remember a couple of years ago, and I don't want to make myself out to be the illustration here, but for, for, for this purpose, I'll just say this happened to me. It happened in one of my pastorates when I was still a full-time pastor. And I remember one of the congregational people had had, um, had, had a problem with, uh, with driving. They had had an accident, and they had hurt somebody pretty bad. And, uh, and, and they had, and they're, unfortunately, the person who was driving had, had been drinking a lot of alcohol, and so they were not really fully present behind the wheel, and they hurt somebody. And I had to go talk to this person. That was a hard one. And so I had to say to myself, now before you go and talk to this person, and talk to them about this, are you going to be thinking with their thoughts, feeling with their feelings, seeing with their eyes, hearing with what's going on in their head? How are you going to deal with this? And I remember I said, you know, it was like the Spirit just said to me, Gene, yeah, you haven't been drunk behind the wheel, you haven't hit anybody, but you've been speeding, you've changed lanes improperly, <laughs> you, have, uh, you have not been the best driver yourself sometimes. And at that moment, I realized that I, too, was not perfect. And I had to go to that person in humility and say, you know, I think we all do struggle out on the road. And I know that you probably were struggling even before you got on the road. You were trying to numb something in your life with the alcohol. I, I understand that. I'm not okaying it. I'm not approving of that. But I do understand. I get that. Pain can be intense. But I want to come to you as a brother, knowing that I've struggled in this area of driving too. And I want to let you know that I love you. And God's got this. And the most important thing that he wants now is for you to say, Lord, when I took all that alcohol into my system, I was going way beyond moderation. I was trying to numb the pain that I should have come to you and say, Lord, would you deal with my pain? I think it breaks the heart of God when we turn to all kinds of stuff, whether it's food or vacations or money or whatever, to numb the pain in our life. And I think, I feel, I feel like I hear God's voice saying, 
why are you turning to that stuff? I want to be the one to take care of your pain. I want to be the one that's brought into your joy. I want to be the one that brings you completeness and satisfaction. So as I came to that man and I talked to him, he immediately said, thank you, Pastor Gene. I appreciate that you didn't come in to condemn me. I thank you that you weren't looking the other way and calling this okay. It was wrong and it was bad and that person's hurt. But I thank you that you come to me in mercy and I will take care of this with the Lord. That's what we're driving things. We're trying to bring people back to Christ. James 3 verse 1 says, it says, <laughs> you know, that if you're going to be a teacher, be careful. The Lord, the Lord will hold you to a stricter judgment. Well, James doesn't say, don't be in a hurry to teach. He doesn't say, try to run for it. He just says, if you're going to be a teacher, then you too, especially when it comes to mercy, are going to have to be the person that puts their arm around people and really helps them to understand just exactly where, where they're at in this whole process. And I know that I look at that log in my own, sometime, uh, my own eye sometimes, and I consider that first before I want to pull anything out of somebody else's eye. So God says, I will let you set the standard, but I hope you make it my standard. I hope it comes out of a heart that reaches for hungry and thirsty for my righteousness and my word. Well, that brings us now then to this. We start over here again. I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer me. Breaks my heart. I turn away from my own control, and I now get under God's control. And once I'm under his control, I begin to start hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And when I do, I become so filled up with the word of God that I'm able to assess situations the way God would. I'm no longer judging in my heart. I'm judging according to the word, but yet I have a merciful spirit because I'm, I'm really relating to this person. And once that happens, God then drives me to become pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, look at the, look at the seed. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall what? See God. Wow. You just got two impossible statements there, don't you? Nobody's pure. And what happens when people saw God in the Old Testament, or for that matter, in the New Testament? They fell over backwards, most of them, and some of them even died. So this is really pretty tough stuff. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let's take a look at the flower. It comes from Matthew 6. Verses 1 through 6 and then 16 through 18. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. Wow. That's amazing to me. <laughs> They've got it. It's... They will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone else can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Now down to verse 16. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they'll ever get. 
But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. Then no one will notice that you're fasting, except your father, who knows what you do in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. Wow. You know, I've become convinced that the trained eye sees more than the regular eye. Now, I like a game that I played when I was in college. It's called American Football. I know most of you probably don't know a lot about that game. You know, you know about European football here, or we call it soccer in the States. But regardless of, regardless of which you prefer, it doesn't matter. I think you'll agree with me that the trained eye sees more. I've, I've watched football games in America with people who played professional football. And I've seen games with people who have never even watched the game much. And you get two different kinds of comments. <laughs> I'm sure that if I watch European football with you, which I don't know too much about, I know a little bit about, but if you've played the game and you've been a star in that, you're going to see more than me because the trained eye sees more. I remember when I picked out the engagement ring for my wife. We've been married 42 years now. And 42 years ago, I stood in front of the jeweler, and the jeweler said, take a look at this ring. And it was a diamond. It wasn't a great big diamond. We couldn't afford too much in those days. But he put it under a microscope. And I thought, okay. Now, this was the jeweler. And he says, take a look at it. So I got up there, and I looked into the microscope, and I could see the jewel. And he says, do you see that feather in there, just that little feather? No. <laughs> well, there's, it's so tiny, he said, that the naked eye can't see. I can see it because my trained eye knows where it is. Huh. The trained eye always sees more. I remember I'm not a musical person. And, uh, I, I love music and I like to sing the best I can, but that's not my talent. And I, I, I love to go to, to, uh, to uh, musicals and I love to hear recitals. I really enjoy good music and I can sit there but I know that the trained ear can hear more than I'm hearing. I sat at a concert once where a Russian pianist was a boy wonder of 14 years old, came to the United States and was playing the piano. And next to me is a guy sitting with the music book with the score in it. And he's following the guy on the notes. And I'm thinking like, wow, I'm just having a hard time even hearing all the notes. This guy's following it on the score sheet. Why? Because the trained eye sees more. Two people can come to church, and after the sermon is over, one person can say, amen. The other person saw it, I thought it would never end. But what's the difference? The trained eye can see more. Two people can walk out of the church, and one of them will say, I met the Lord today. They're only going to say, I thought it would never end. The trained eye, the trained ear, will always see more. It is the pure in heart who what? For they shall what? See God. And I'm just going to say this straight out because preachers do this. And the nice part about it is I'm leaving next week, so that's too bad. But <laughs> if you're coming to church and you're not getting much out of it, first of all, take the log out of your own eye. And number two, maybe, maybe it's an issue of the heart. Maybe there's something going on in your heart you're not able to see God. Because those who are pure in heart, who understand that they don't have mixed motives, are people who have become 
so filled up with God's word that they're now able to judge things correctly because they've had a banquet appetite, because they're under his control, because they're sick and tired of running their own life, because they finally figured it out that God has everything to give them. They have nothing to give God. The ultimate destination of every work of God, every work of God, is for his people to see his glory. I, th I think this is powerful to us. As a congregation, everything that goes on, I, I mean, I got to take the little boat cruise this last week. What a wonderful time, thing that was to see the city of Copenhagen from the boat. And we went through there, and we saw the marvelous architect, but then we saw the water and we saw the beautiful sky, we thought everything, and everything was done in that, in, in, in terms of nature, in terms of God's creation, to give him glory. Mothers, it's your day today. It's your day, and your children are precious. But when they see that beautiful sunset, or they see the beautiful flowers, or they see the beautiful trees, or they see something that God has made, don't say to your children, isn't Mother Nature wonderful? <laughs> no, give God credit and say, start them young and say, isn't God beautiful? Isn't he made some beautiful things? Everything that's done in our lives is to give credit and to the glory of God. And here's the other thing. Not only do the pure in heart see God, but listen to this. When you're doing something from unmixed motives, when you're giving something of that nature and that, that magnitude to God, you know what happens? people start to see Jesus in you. <laughs> and becomes a powerful thing to you. It ends my goal in that someday I will see Jesus face to face as Christ my Savior. And God will give you a complete vision of who He is. But right now, when you walk in with pure motives, when you are not mixed in your motives, the pure in heart get to see Him and the people watching you get to see Jesus in you. Notice he didn't say pure in body, pure in job, pure in methods, pure in motives. No, the Pharisees were pure in keeping their rabbinic laws. They were pure in body. They were, in fact, many of the Pharisees were outstanding citizens, but Jesus condemned them, didn't he? Jesus says of the Pharisees that even the harlots, he says, will get into heaven before you do. Wow. <laughs> That's a mouthful, Jesus. Whew. Figure that one out. That'll keep you going in seminary for a while. Yeah. What he's saying is, it's not the purity of your body. It's the purity of your heart. Well, what do we mean by pure in heart? Well, I've kind of hinted at it, that it's unmixed. Literally, the word was used in agricultural term. It was used of corn that had been winnowed. It was used in an army uh, where cowards were filtered out of the armies. Alexander the Great a story is told about Alexander the Great some time ago when he was in conquest of the world. And there was a young man, a beautiful young man, handsome, tall. I, I like to say he was, and I guess the story goes, he was blonde. He must have been some kind of from the Nordic Baltic area here. <laughs> and he was a beautiful young man to behold. And he was in Alexander's army. But one day he committed cowardice on the battlefield and he was brought in before Alexander. And typically the... Uh, the, the, the drill for that would be that he would, he would be killed by Alexander. But Alexander looked upon this young man and how beautiful he was, and his men could see that Alexander's face was softening. And Alexander says, you've been brought here in front of me because of your cowardice. 
what is your name? And the kid said, Alexander. And Alexander took a step back. And you know what he did? He gave that kid another chance. Two weeks later, he was brought back before Alexander for another act of cowardice. And before Alexander relinquished the punishment, whatever that was, he turned to the boy and he said, listen, son, he said, I need you to change your behavior or change your name. You and I follow Jesus Christ. We are disciples of the Master. We are to allow His life to come through us. And as we are filled up with His Word in our life, as we begin to be merciful and distribute that and to, and to, and, and to let that Word command our life and our decisions and our judgments, so then it causes our judgments and, our, and, and to become unmixed, to drive out those things that are not involved in our life have you ever been in a restaurant where, I know some of you use, most of you use mayonnaise on your fries, but in the United States, we, we often use ketchup. And sometimes you'll sit in a restaurant and the ketchup takes forever to come out. In some restaurants, it just comes right out. It just falls like, you know, and what have they done? They put water in it. They've mixed the water in with it. You see, when you do something, God says, I want it unmixed. I want your motive to be my motive for doing it. You are what you say you are. No unmixed motives. The heart is the steering wheel of your life, the center, the seat of your emotions. The Word of God says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, God says, is an unbelieving heart that kicks you in or kicks you out of salvation. If I had written it, I would have said the unbelieving mind. But God said it was the unbelieving heart. Christianity is not just an intellectual assent, it's a decision of the will. When we say there is, is there any good reason for you not to receive Christ today? I worry about a statement like that because then people think it's just a brain thing. It's just a, an intellectual thing. It probably isn't a reason or an intellect. It's a matter of the heart, the will, the emotions which say, I will never surrender to God or the idea of a God. That's what the atheist says. I'll never do it. Because it's about my heart. Oh, I'm, I'm going to come up with a lot of stuff in my head about it, but it's really about my heart. A man's life, a woman's life is controlled by his or her heart. You control your heart, you control your life. People have even said to me, well, you know what, the Sermon on the Mount is my religion. Well, then your religion just condemned you. <laughs> Have you ever said something you didn't mean? Have you ever said something about somebody to be polite because you didn't want to incur their anger? Have you ever, ever deed you've done, have ever done, has it been with no ulterior motives ever? Have you ever flattered someone to cover up the real feelings about them? No. I look at my life and I think, God, my motives sometimes are so mixed it's unbelievable. Why is that? Because I've made judgments that were really not your judgments. They were my judgments. And the reason I did that is because I wasn't really looking in your word for any help at all. And the reason I did that is because I was feeling sorry for myself and I got back under my control. And I'm really not upset about that at all. I, I just really want to go on my own program because I think I have left the seat of thinking that you have everything to offer me and, or I've, everything, I, so I've got something to offer you. 
No, because when we come to the point where we understand completely, unequivocally, in permanent thought life, that God has everything to offer us spiritually. We have zero to offer Him. Absolutely nothing. It breaks our heart. And we get under His control. And we thirst and hunger for His Word, which then causes us to bear His judgments and His opinions on things, which even gets to the point of purifying and causing us to get our motives correct. Boy, I love doing that. I love being able to say to my life, in my life and to everyone around. I, th I was thinking about doing it this way, but then the Lord and his word spoke to me, and in, in his mercy I've now come to realize this is his word, and he has now filtered out some of the junk in my motive. Wow. Now, what does he say about that? What does he say about that? And quickly, we'll have a couple points here, but he says, I'm going to do it in, in three things. Look up on the screen here. I think we've got it here. He wants these acts of righteousness to be unmixed. So he brings out three that the Pharisees do. Number one, in your giving, don't sound a trumpet. Can you imagine uh, a Pharisee walking down the street and he's got his trumpeter behind him? And the Pharisee comes along and he pulls out a couple of kroners, you know, and he gives it to the beggar on the street, flips it in there. And just as he's ready to throw it in, the guy behind him hits the trumpet. And everybody turns around because he wants him to see what? I'm giving this guy some money. God says, that's, that's a mixed motive. That's a mixed motive. Don't do that. Number two, he says, when you, when you pray, don't sound pompous. Don't go into that religious voice. Our Father... We come to you this morning. No, we're not here to show us pompousness. And then he says in the final one, when you fast, don't look miserable and disturbed. Don't come into church and say, I've just finished a week of fasting and your hair is all messed up and you haven't changed your clothes, you know, and you, and you haven't shaved or, or whatever, you know. And then people go, what in the world have you been doing? I've been fasting, brother. See, now you're calling attention to yourself. It's a mixed motive for why you're doing it. So don't blow trumpets. Don't sound pompous or pious. And don't look disheveled or disserved. But number one, here it comes. Number one, be conscious of the presence of God. Wow. I've underlined a cup. Who sees what is done in secret. Notice verse 6, who sees what is done in secret. Number 18, who sees what is done in secret. Whether you give, whether you pray, whether you're fast, guess who's watching in private, in secret? God is. He sees. He sees everything. He knows what your agenda is. All things are open and in front of God. Sometimes we play for the crowd, don't we? I was watching some highlights the other night of one of the soccer games here in the Premier League. In fact, when I was down as pastor in Frankfurt for a while, a few years ago, I got a chance to see Munich play um, Manchester United in Munich. Wow. 
Munich scored, and the whole ground just shook. I mean, the stadium, I thought, was coming down. It just shook. The whole land shook. But then the player who scored the goal, he was playing to the crowd. He did three or four backflips in a row. And he gave this one of these things, and he high-fived and everything. And, and I thought, wow, that's some real showmanship there. And I thought, for a moment, I thought, I wish I could do backflips. You know, somebody said, that was a good sermon. I could backflip all the way out the church, you know. <laughs> Getting high-fives as I go, you know. Well, that'd look pretty pompous, wouldn't it? Look incredible. We don't do that. So sometimes people play to the crowd. But one day, we stand in front of God. We, we can't play to God. He knows our motives. We need to be conscious of the presence of God in our life. One businessman in Denver told me, he said, he said, you know, it was really funny. He said, I come to work every day. And, and, and he says, before I heard this sermon, he said, I would come to work and I, it would become, uh, this is the conversation I'd have with God. I'd be walking up to the front door and I'd say, in, inside my head, I'd be going, now, Lord, you just stay out here. It's really rough inside that building. But I'll pick you up again at five and we'll go home. But you, I don't think you should come into my work. They say a lot of bad things in there. They're really shifty in there. There's a lot of, there's lack of integrity in there. Uh, I'll pick you up at five. But after I heard your sermon, Pastor Gene, he said, I realized that I needed to be conscious of the presence of God, that God was coming with me whether I wanted him or not. And how I handled the situation inside the building. God was very conscious of the things I said, the things I did. And I would not be able to handle my colleagues or those who I work with unless my motives were unmixed. And the reason they were unmixed today is because I had what God said about things. And the reason I had what God said about things is because I've been hungering and thirsting for his word. And the reason I did that is because he's been driving my life. And the reason he's been driving my life is because I'm so sick of driving my own. And the reason I'm sick of driving my own is because I came to the point where I knew now that I have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer me. You see, this is the story of salvation, my friend. This is how these beatitudes work. They come right out of each other. The last point that I'll give this morning is simply this. Let me just give one other thing here, and then we'll go to the last point. One of the, one of the things that sometimes bothers us the most with mixed motives is that we do it, but then we have a problem just keeping it to ourselves. When's the last time you did something really nice for somebody and you didn't tell anybody? When's the last time you just gave someone a thousand kroners and just kind of stuck it in an envelope and gave it to them because they might need it? No name on it, just anonymous here. I know things have been tough. Here's a little something for the week so you can go out and get a bite to eat or just do something. He says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. In fact, what that means is don't even tell yourself. <laughs> but sometimes we want to not only do things, great things for God, but we want to hear from other people how great we are when we do it. And God says, don't do that. I see in secret, and I'll take care of it. The last thing is this. Not only be conscious of the presence of God, but number two, be content with the praise of God. I think this is a lot powerful. 
I know that we're raised uh, to, to not get too praiseworthy of other people. And some, some traditions in some countries praise their people more than others. Others try to form a little bit more equality amongst people. I get all of that. But there is something inside of us that it does make a difference to us sometimes when we just come up and we put an arm around somebody and says, thank you for today. It means something to this worship team when you say, hey guys, thanks for being here every week. Thanks for leading us in worship. It's not wrong to say that. And these guys are not coming out in the congregation looking for it. Because we talked about encouragement being an important point to keep us from the deceitfulness of sin. But the issue is that we too, though, that we first and foremost are content with the praise of God. He will reward you. And that's what it says in verse, isn't it? In all those verses, in 4, 6, and 18. It talks about the same thing, that he who sees in secret, he will reward you. Wow. Well, I'd like to get some reward. Well, then if you don't, if you are rewarded now, you already got your reward. But sometimes I, wanna, I don't want to be content with just God's praise. I want, the, I want the praise of man, too, the praise of humankind. And God says, no. You see, when your motives are unmixed, you're conscious of his presence and you're content with his praise. Why are you? Because you've shown mercy. You've, you've assessed situations the way God did. Why? Because you've been hungry and thirsting. Why? Because you've been under his power and his leadership. Why? Because you're sick of your own power. Why? Because you realize that if you continue that way, you'll never come to a point where you understand that God has everything to offer you and you have nothing to offer him. There's a little movie and clip that I wish I could have shown you today, but I'll just describe it very quickly. It's a little movie called How Do You Know with Reese Witherspoon and Paul Judd, a couple of famous American actors and actresses. Actress. In that scene, Paul is really trying to win the hand of Reese Witherspoon. He really loves her, but she's kind of dating another guy. But they've been having some fun together, and so uh, he thinks that this is his one last chance to see if he could win her heart. So the scene is set. It's her birthday. And he got an invitation. And he pulls her aside and gives her a gift. So she opens it very carefully, very methodically, very slowly. And he doesn't try to rush her. She finally gets the thing open and it's a can of Play-Doh. Do you know what Play-Doh is? It's a little clay that kids squeeze and it's full of color. And she goes, what's this? He said, well, it doesn't work unless you hear the story. The guy who invented this Play-Doh was a guy in Philadelphia who back in the day needed this white goo to pull off the soot from the coal stoves and furnaces that used to be in, in uh, years ago before electricity kind of came in. And they, they would put this goo on the wall and it would pull off all the soot off the wallpaper. But as electrical heat came in and as furnaces came in, there was no longer a need for this goo. And the guy was going broke. He was going under. So his sister, who lived in another town, wrote to him and said, well, look, he said, my child loves squeezing this goo of yours. He likes it better than that real hard modeling clay that they sell in the store. Why don't you make it color? Put some color in it. 
and call it Play-Doh. And he said, you know, he looks at Reese and she, she goes, she's kind of questioning like, so? He said, well, the point is this. He looks at her and he says, this, I've kept it all these years to tell you one thing. She said, what's that? That we're all just one small adjustment away from making our life work. What's that small adjustment for you today? You may think it's a big one, but from God's perspective, it's a very small one. It may be just surrendering to Him. Maybe you're here for the first time and you've never made that commitment to Christ. You're just one adjustment away from making your life work and coming to know Christ in faith. Maybe you are a Christ believer and a Christ follower, but there's something in your life that maybe He says, you know, why don't you just give me that? I know it's your dream. Can I have it? Can I have it? Well, no, it's my dream. Please, trust me. I just want to make one small adjustment. <laughs> really? Well, here's my dream. Thank you. And God goes back. He kind of puts it on his celestial shelf and picks up another one that's higher and says, here, I think you're going to be knocked back by this dream. We're all just one small adjustment away from making our life work. And so this morning, you and I have come to a point where we understand that God has everything to offer us. We don't want to be on our own program. We want to be under His leadership. It's caused us to have a banquet appetite for His Word, which now is causing us to make proper judgments and write calculations in our life. It's even, us, it's even caused us to having unmixed motives where we don't sound trumpets. We don't look pompous. And we don't look disheveled or trying to attract attention to ourselves. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to cause, for the very first time, for us to be peacemakers. Not just peacekeepers, but peacemakers. And there's a big difference. And we'll pick that up next week. Amen and amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.